everyone. Um, welcome to the start of our 2020 annual conference of the British Society of Sports History. I'm Raf Nicholson. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the current chair of the BSSH. I'm also a senior lecturer in sport and sustainability at Bournemouth University. I'm going to hand over to Connor Heffernan now, who's chairing this opening session of our 2020 conference on Edwardian sport. Over to you, Connor. Yes, perfect. Thanks, Raf, and welcome, everyone. I'm going to introduce first Martin Polly. Martin is known to, I think, most of us here. He's an old hand, uh, experienced hand, not an old hand, at the BSSH. And he'll be speaking today about C.R. Ashby and the arts and crafts movement and sport in the Cotswolds from 1902 to 1908. So again, after Martin's finished, I'll ask questions based on what you're putting up in the chat function. So thank you, everyone, and away to Martin. Great. Thank, thanks very much. And hi, everyone. Great to see you. Um, I've been coming to BSH since 1996, maybe before I went to Auburn. So it's great, great to be here. Um, those of you, can I just check, is that working okay? Is the, slide, is the share screen working? Yep, that's perfect. The thumbs up, brilliant. Uh, those of you who were in Japan with me at the weekend, that was a sort of 12 inch remix version of this. If you are at both conferences, I apologize for in 1900, the arts and crafts designer and architect C.R. Charles Ashby drafted a set of rules for the Guild of Handicraft, which he'd established in 1888 as a craft collective. At their heart, these rules aimed to do good work and to do it in such a way that shall best conduce to the welfare of the workmen. Like many paternalistic employers of this period, he made links between workers' conditions and the work that they undertook. And he extended these principles to the Guild's cultural life, in the second quotation, by promoting that other side of life, which whether in time of holiday or work, whether in sports, music, by drama, or any form of art, brings men together and helps them live in fellowship. Charles Ashby, with his colleague, collaborator, and wife, Janet, these wonderful portraits from the early 20th century of the pair of them, acted on this utopian innovation as they moved the Guild in 1902 from Mile End in East London to the Cotswold town of Chipping Camden in Gloucestershire, where it remained until its liquidation in 1907. It's the sporting aspect of this philanthropic project that, that concerns me today. The Ashby's active engagement in sport is an underexplored feature of the Guild's life and by extension of the arts and crafts movement more generally. By studying it, we can trace a nascent sporting philosophy that spoke both okay, to workplace workers and, and to wider issues in British sport at the time, stratified as it was along the lines of social class, gender, education, and math. Everyone okay? Yeah. Cool. Um, by adapting a phrase from one of Charles's journal entries, we can call this philosophy the quest for a rational means of relating athleticism to life. While the Ashby's roots in the arts and crafts movement and their progressive politics gave their sporting project a particular flavour, what they did with the Guild was obviously part of a wider trend of workplace sport linked to employer paternalism and philanthropy. Ray Vamplew has explored different types of this sporting provision, including works teams, annual sports days, and he argues that employers' motives in promoting sport varied from the caring paternalism of small family firms through to the more distant strategic corporate welfare of larger companies. Many of these industrial workplace sports projects, famously Boots, Roundtree, Lever Brothers, Cadbury and more, were all in capitalist models, by exploring the Ashby sporting projects with the Guild of Handicraft, we can bring a new model workplace into this debate, that of the anti-modern Guild. 
while it shared some features with the more mainstream model, it did have an ideological flavor of its own. So the key differences between the Ashby's model and these two wider contexts, industrial workplace sport on the one hand, and Victorian and Edwardian commercial and professional sport on the other, lay in Charles Ashby's roots in the culture, politics, aesthetics of the arts and crafts movement, drawing in ideas from William Morris, John Ruskin, Walt Whitman, and more. The sporting lives enjoyed by the Ashby's, their guildsmen and their families, and the wider Chipping Camden community resonated with some key aspects of arts and crafts philosophy, which art historian Kaplan has identified as an art which used indigenous materials and native traditions, along with such core values as joy in labor, a simple life, and fidelity to place. The result was a tentative experiment in arts and crafts sporting culture and in guild socialist workplace welfare. So in 1902, the Guild moved from East London to Chipping Camden. They took on an old silk mill in Sheep Street, secured accommodation for the workers and their families, and set up a school of arts and crafts for technical education and public lectures. The Ashbys moved into a house in the High Street, and with them, approximately 150 people, workers and their families, joined the exodus from East London. Uh, this, this increased Chipping Camden's population by a little over 10% at the time of a very significant exodus. And it created a community in Janet Ashby's words, of reformed cockneys in Arcadia. This looks like a um, Peaky Blinders, the missing reels, I think, here, but it's a great picture of some of the workmen in their new uh, bucolic setting. And it was in Camden that the Ashby's interest in sport found many outlets. Charles led most of these and wrote about some of them, while Janet was central to other projects and supported Charles in some of his. Through their actions and writings, they explored the ways in which sport could improve individuals' lives and the life of a community, and how people could, could avoid the what they saw as the excesses of sport. For the regular life of the guildsmen and their families, <clears throat> the most obvious manifestations of this sporting culture were the guild's regular teams and annual sports days. Features common, of course, to many workplace sporting cultures of the period, and the guild had already started with these back in London. In December 1901, when Charles pitched the exodus to the whole guild, he devoted a paragraph to recreation alongside his notes on housing work and church going, which you'll have, he wrote, the opportunity of joining local cricket and football teams. We were advised that arrangements would be made for swimming during the summertime. And there are many attractive spots within bicycling distance. And once they got to Camden in 1902, there are many glimpses of the guild sporting life in the archive. We can see it when metal worker Arthur Cameron sent his father this undated postcard of Camden's St. James's Church with the handwritten news at the, at, on the right there, going to Evesham today to play football. We can see it in Janet's journal entry from January 1906, when she's reviewing the year just finished. Quote, the Sundays over Dover's Hill to Sandbury, the hockey matches, the swimming lake and the Christmas play, unquote. Photographs of football and cricket teams survive in this one. That's um, Ashby himself at the uh, back left, in, in, uh, not in the sporting gear, but in the, in, in the hat and tie there. Um, Photographs like these ex exist, as do pictures of a guild sports day involving a boisterous game of water quintain. Wonderful, it's a knockout kind of feel here. And Ashby explained his thinking in 1908 in his book, Craftsmanship in Competitive Industry. Quote, we sought when settling in the country to give our fellows a variety of different forms of sport, simple for the most part, but such as would make for the solidarity of life and fit in with the different seasons of the year, unquote. What I want to do is look at three case studies which provide us with a more granular view of the Ashby's approaches to sport and how their sporting projects in Camden link to their wider objectives. 
First, the silversmithing or football debates about George Colbert. Second, the construction of Camden's bathing lake. And third, Ashby's interest in Robert Dover's games, the historic Cotswold Olympics. Taken together, these case studies, and there are many more that I've offered have cut for today, these case studies illustrate a philosophy of sport in the microcosm of a utopian guild community and the country town that hosted it. First then, silversmithing or football. Charles Ashby believed that sport could be a healthy influence on the individual, as long as it was balanced with other activities. And this belief was central to his first written reflection on sport in Camden, when in 1903, one of the silversmiths, George Colbert, decided to return to London to try and make it as a footballer with Millwall. Colbert had always impressed Ashby. He was a talented all-round sportsman, highly rated in the guild in football, swimming and athletics. In a journal entry from November 1901, before the move to Camden, Ashby praised Colbert's, quote, masterly instinct for efficiency, whether it be silversmithing or football, in everything that he undertakes. His many qualities, quote, give his athleticism its significance, unquote. And he said that these qualities were modesty and diplomacy and a, a good manner of speech. And they all suggested a balanced approach in which, in Ashby's words, the game is the game and nothing more, unquote. The crisis came in January 1903 when Colbert returned to London to try his luck with Millwall. Charles wrote a journal entry which serves as the first expression of his philosophy of sport. Using some comic elements, quote, in comes fate in the shape of a football, unquote, and describing Colbert in a paternalistic, controlling way as, quote, one of my pet cockneys, unquote, Charles saw this as an interesting problem of character. He wrote, had our Millwall George not been a person of real character, I shouldn't have minded but to lose him just because he's such a fine athlete, one of the very things one wants to encourage wisely was too bad. The boy has got football on the brain, he went on, with a sense of possessive paternalism still evident. And as we have as yet no rational means of relating athleticism to life, there seemed no way of curing the growth except by an overdose. He had evidently asked Colbert to stay on and play for the Guild team, but the lure of Millwall won out. And Ashby's frustration was palpable. Now, he wrote, the result of it will be that unless he breaks his leg or loses his wind or comes to some fortunate grief, George will become a professional footballer. Their lot or place in society is not a good one. How absurd the want of balance is in modern life, unquote. Now, Charles's frustration with Colbert here contrasts sharply with Janet's description one year later of Simeon Sammy Samuels, one of the Guild's jewellers, who had decided to stay in London rather than move to the Cotswolds. She met him on a trip back to the capital and wrote in a letter to Charles to her husband, Sammy looks splendid, doing all kinds of very interesting enamelling jobs, built his craft, no end of a swell, and getting medals for gymnastics and swimming and boxing clubs and cycling and diving and singing in a troupe, altogether most wholesome and successful, unquote. Samuels then, in sharp contrast to the football mad Colbert, epitomises the wholesome and balanced life. Colbert's decision to place football above his craft thus gave Charles Ashby the chance to muse privately on sport. And what emerges is close to a manifesto. He valued sport for its healthy and communal attributes, but he wished for a way in which it could be used wisely as part of a harmonious life rather than as an end in itself. However, it's clear from Ashby's tone and vocabulary that his paternalistic attitude towards his workers was not always generous calling Colbert his, quote, own pet cockney, unquote, and hoping that he could teach Colbert lessons about sports dangers, rather than allowing this adult to find out for himself, suggests a, a rather 
potentially unpleasant sense of control. For Colbert, however, this appears to be an academic. Millwall Football Club's club historian has no record of him appearing for the first team, and I've been unable to trace him any other, appearing for any other clubs at this time. His loss in, in 1911, in the sense that he is still appearing as a silversmith, his loss showed Ashby that creating a guild sporting culture would face challenges and that professional and commercial sport would always have some appeals over the kind of community model which he aspired. Okay, the second theme then is uh, called, uh, called regular contact with air and water, the bathing lake. And actually the, the slide we have up at the moment is a, a, a something that the activity that went on at the side of the pool. See more pictures in a moment. The Ashby's biggest sporting intervention was more practical than the Colbert, which was all about ideals. And it was based on giving the guild and townspeople a chance to improve their health and their sense of community through swimming. In this, the Ashby's project obviously overlapped with many other examples of workplace sport at the time, with Port Sunlight and Bourneville and other places having employer-provided swimming pools. Now, swimming had always been a really important activity for the Ashby's. Here are two early pictures from before the move to Camden of Janet and some of her friends swimming. Uh, they were big believers in, in cycling, hiking, rowing and swimming. It's very much all about communing uh, with, with, with nature. And they wasted no time in realising the idea of building a pool for the town, both through fundraising and through lobbying the local landowner, Lord Gainsborough, for a site. In May 1902, Janet recorded a country walk with Fabian activist Sidney Webb who'd come to visit. We struck over the fields to the mill stream where Lord Gainsborough is going to build us a swimming bar. By December, they were raising money for the project. The profits from their Christmas production of Ben Johnson's The New Inn went towards the Swimming Lake Fund, and they promised local children that any money they raised from carol singing could be spent on swimming tickets. Ashby's philanthropy here then was moving beyond the gill into the wider town. And by the end of February 1903, Ashby had secured the legal framework for the pool. Gainsborough leased him Westington Upper Mill Pool and the surrounding field a short distance south of Camden. For a rent of three pounds a year, he dug and enclosed the pool, an enlargement of an existing natural pond supplied by the stream. They opened the pool in August 1903 with a hate year admission charge. And it very quickly became the location for a whole range of aquatic events. Swimming classes like this one seen here, um, aquatic games, walking the bar, bolster games, things like that and uh, the, the regular annual aquatic sports day for the town. Again, you can see here with the swings and trapezes into the water, a diving platform on the right and a large crowd watching. Alongside these annual events, it became a resource for the town as the venue for swimming and life-saving lessons. The pool outlived the guild's formal presence in Camden, but it deteriorated during the Great War and firefighters eventually drained it in 1930 to help them with an emergency. The field returned to arable use and it's now the site of a housing development. So though short-lived, the pool served an important role in the Ashby's agenda of promoting health and education for the people, especially the children of Camden. It was on the matter of education that the Ashby's progressive views clashed with the Camden gentry's more conservative outlook, with sports serving as a source of local political tension. Janet and Charles both assumed that girls should have the same opportunities to swim as boys. Mary, Lady Gainsborough, had other views, and in June 1904, he urged Janet to drop the idea of providing swimming lessons for schoolgirls. In her reply, Janet emphasised swimming's importance. Quote, one has only to look at the anemic and sickly women and girls here to grasp how their physical development has been neglected. The only chance to help the health of the next generation against the bad conditions of life 
is to bring small children into regular contact with air and water. Sadly, we have no paper trail of how they resolved the disputes, but photographs do show male and female swimmers of all ages enjoying the pool. Swimming then, an accessible and democratic exercise, was central to the Ashby's vision for a healthy guild and town community. And their interventions in building the pool and using it for play, competition and exercise made a positive impact on the town. Third case study and final case study is called A Fine Solidarity in the Life of the Countryside, Robert Dover and the Cotswold Olympics. Ashby's um, intellectual and emotional response to Camden was informed by his often romanticised reading of local history. And this came through in sporting terms in his engagement with Robert Dover's games, the Cotswold Olympics. Obviously don't have time to go into the whole history of those now. The, the frontispiece from Anali de Brancia will be familiar to many people in the room. Um, the games had lasted from the early 17th century until the 1850s, when the enclosure of part of Dover's Hill made them impossible. So when the Guild arrived in Camden, the games had already been lost for 50 years. But the terms of Ashby's engagement with this history illustrate his developing philosophy of sport, resonating with his core values of craftsmanship and locality. And this engagement took the form of both words and deeds. In terms of words, he wrote about Dover's games in a niche antiquarian book, The Last Records of a Cotswold Community, in 1904. Here's the frontispiece which shows Dover's Hill, and any of you who have been to the games will recognise it immediately. Ashby traced the history of the games from Dover to enclosure, and he rooted them in a mystical sense of community revelry, in which Dover was seen to have made a right plucky and stand-up fight, unquote, for humanism against Puritanism. And Ashby drew contemporary parallels between the, the games of Dover's day and sport of his own time, 1904, when he wrote this. And two themes emerged. First, an abhorrence of professionalism, which echoed the Colbert crisis. And second, a longing for sport to be a site of community coherence. He couched the first theme in uncompromising language, borrowing freely from Dover's account of how people who had given up wholesome games are, quote, not men, but moving lumps of clay, unquote. Do we not see, as old Dover did, walking in our streets, Ashby raged, men who might be fine sportsmen, but are nothing but moving lumps of clay, beer maggots, unquote. He called instead for a sport characterised by the man who plays the game for its own sake, and not for the pot of beer or purse of gold. The second theme, that of community cohesion, was more positive, and Ashby talked about ways in which the games, if, if the games must have provided a holistic, uh, organic community basis for the town. And he echoed some of these themes in 1905 when the Guild put on Shakespeare's As You Like It in the Town Hall. Excerpt from the programme, just to, I wanted to have this as well so you can see the, the beautiful craftsmanship of their printed work. As You Like It is a local play, he wrote. Shakespeare might have seen, probably did see, Charles the Wrestler challenge the lads of Camden at the games on Dover's Hill. And later that year, he sent Janet a song he'd written about the game, the last stanza, again, just give you this for his handwriting, the last stanza of which ran. They sang these songs of old, of old they played the game. I think when all is told, men are still much the same. They sport, they laugh, they fret, they love and they forget. Come over to Camden, climb the crown of Dover's Hill. And so through these writings, public and private, it's clear that Dover's games had a key role in Ashby's understanding of sport and its place in the community. And in 1906, he took this interest to the next logical step by attempting to revive them. The evidence for this is unfortunately scanty. Our knowledge rests on one newspaper report, photograph and headline here, and one artefact. The report, The Cotswold Games Revived at Chipping Camden, was in the London-based illustrated paper, The Sphere. 
illustrated with a photograph of Miss Symington of Stratford preparing to dive into the pool. And the report covered the sports and the ceremonials, and it talked about a superb mace of silver set with mother of pearl and amethyst, which Ashby had designed for the opening procession. The mace's head has survived. It's now in Cheltenham's um, Wilson Art Gallery, uh, Arts and Crafts Collection. It's lost its original crown, which was a small model of Bovis Castle. But even without this, it speaks to Ashby's belief in craft and pageantry as a central part of any community sports event. Now this branding of the aquatic sports seems to have been a one-off. The next revival, as we know, didn't happen until 1951, nine years after Ashby's death, with no involvement from any of Ashby's people. But he returned to Dover's game as a theme in many of his writings uh, afterwards. I'll, I'll cut through the, the, the one I particularly want to talk about is his um, utopian time travel novel, The Building of Thelema. Uh, I wouldn't recommend this as a, as a cover to cover read by any means. It borrows very freely and quite badly from The Pilgrim's Progress and News from Nowhere. But it's an allegory about the simple life as a cockney joiner moves through time and space to all the kind of places that Ashby idealised. And of course, he sent him to Chipping Hamden, and two chapters are devoted to the games. Ralph meets Dover, marches with the local boys and girls, enjoys the spectacle, and even competes against some Cotswold lads who, quote, admire his pluck but have no sympathy with his absence of muscle, unquote. When the nobility arrive and everyone starts dancing at the games, Ralph observes, we're as near to utopia here as we ever shall be. And the only sour note is the presence of a group of puritanical preachers who rant against all the heathenish dancing and wrestling and riding as an abomination in the eyes of the Lord, unquote. The idyll returns when a rainstorm arrives to drown out their preaching. What Ashby does in this fictional form sheds so much light on his view of sport. He idealizes the community nature of Dover's game and the leading role played in it by a connected aristocracy who lived on the land and were of it. There's a centrality of craft communities in Ashby's vision of this ideal society. And his belief in the countryside superiority over the city is evident, embodied quite literally in the feebleness of Rafe's muscles. Finally, the text shows a loving attention to detail through Ashby's description based on very deep reading of Analia de Grencia, of the games, of Camden and of its surrounding landscape. Overall, Ashby's reimagining of Dover's games in fiction shows us how central sport was to his vision of an ideal society, as it offered a meeting place for the kind of community to which he aspired. Okay, a few concluding remarks then. The Ashby's utopian experiment ended in 1907 when the Guild was liquidated in the face of rising costs and falling profits. The craftsmen dispersed, though some stayed on in Camden. The Ashby's kept a property in the area and Charles was active in education and sporting matters, certainly up until at least 1914. In 1917, he returned to sports potential for building communities in a book of town planning he wrote called Where the Great City Stands. And he included an affectionate look back at what he, Janet and their colleagues have achieved in Camden and the utopian experiment of grafting London Guild onto a rural community. While we can't ascribe the 1951 revival of Dover's games to Ashby, his writings and activities kept a memory alive at a time when the only other people interested were antiquarians. And I think there's a beautiful resonance in the fact the Hart silversmiths descended from some of the original craftsmen who moved with Ashby, still with their own workshop in, Silk Street, in Sheep Street. Uh, they make the May Queen's Medal uh, with an image of Robert Dover for the Scuttlebrook Wake and the Games every year. Now, when we place the Ashby's interventions against the wider movement of paternalistic workplace sport, we can see that the Guild shared common ground with many other employers' practices. First off, Ashby fits Gilchrist's archetype of, quote, the strong paternalistic figure, unquote, who took part in the sports he provided, 
His personal imprint is everywhere, as the benevolent, fun-loving boss swimming with his workers, but also as the controlling manager who knows better than his staff what's good for them. Second, some of the guild's sport took place in a defined locale that had strong associations with the workplace. The guild physically enhanced this place's sporting infrastructure by building the pool, while Ashby's more romantic writings made intellectual and emotional links with the area's history. Third, the guild sport was geared towards making the workers and their families fit, happy and healthy. Everything from drill and swimming classes to providing football and cricket clubs contributed to the workers' well-being, which had benefits, at least in theory, for production and profit. So in all of these ways, the Ashby's had much in common with the other paternalistic employers of their period. However, what the Ashby's achieved in Camden, I think, went beyond these other industrial projects. It was ideologically informed by a unique blend of guild socialism, arts and crafts values, romanticized readings of local history, and a critical engagement with contemporary professional and commercial sport. And all of these were dedicated to creating a connected community made up of people with balanced lives, of which sport was a part. The Ashby's belief in sports physical and mental benefits were rooted in this ideology, as was their celebration of sports indigenous materials that they found in Camden. Overall, the Ashby's interventions were an attempt to live out a speculative philosophy of sport, a rational attempt at relating athleticism to life, an attempt based on balance, health and community solidarity. Thanks. All right, perfect. Thanks, Martin. I think I'll uh, join everyone by giving you a very virtual round of applause using the reactions button. Um, so, <laughs> and the dogs on cue, fantastic. We have a few questions come in now, and I will say to people, feel free to type questions into the chat function as we continue. Such is Martin's expertise that he's already answered the first question from Nick Percy on whether you could outline the differences uh, between the guild groups and other industrialized sporting groups. So I think we'll move on to Joseph's question, which is, when did industrial sport groups start in Europe and what industries were involved and what were the common sports? Okay, thanks. Um, I, the, the best thing I can recommend for this, Joe, is uh, Ray Van Plew's wonderful article on workplace sports. Um, he certainly sees it, it coming through in the 1820s, 1830s with big booms, certainly in the UK and, and Germany and elsewhere with industrialization um, in the 1880s and 90s. Um, the ones I've seen most work on, uh, Matt McConnell is in the room, uh, Matt McDonald can obviously speak to this as well, um, about his, he's done some great work on many Scottish examples. Um, the most successful ones are probably things like uh, Boots the Chemist, which provided a number of workplace sports for its workers in Nottingham, Bourneville in Birmingham, with a whole range of sporting fields, playing fields, tennis courts, swimming pools, everything else, similarly with the, the confections, Roundtree in York. Um, and then certainly by the start of the 20th century, you start seeing insurance companies, banks, the service sector get involved. Simon English has done a lot in this in, in played in London, looking at their, their sports field and, of course, the civil service. So on a really big scale across all, all kinds of sectors of the economy, what I'm finding fascinating about Ashby is that the absolutely tiny micro level uh, with, with direct contact between boss and workers and this kind of a value underpinning that was more than just about giving them the chance to be healthy so they could be better workers, but actually about you know, genuinely improving their lives. As I, I would refer you to Ray Vampley's wonderful work on, on workplace sport theory. Excellent. Okay, so now we have Raf Nicholson saying, interesting that Janet and Charles believe girls should have equal access to swimming to boys. 
Do we know whether this extended to other sports like football or cricket, or was there something particular about swimming? Thanks. Thanks, Raph. Um, I think the, the big thing with swimming is Janet herself had, had loved swimming all her life, was particularly open water, although when they lived in London, she did use the Chelsea Baths. And she was a, a huge evangelist for the, all of the health benefits of air and water together. And uh, she knew that because swimming was obviously cheap and democratic once they provided the pool, then the girls should absolutely have access to it. Beyond that, the only um, example I've found in the, in the records, and I mean, the archives for this, which I'm happy to speak about, are fantastic, but what they don't include is any sort of very clear, there's no sports committee that's recording every team and who they're playing against. But I have seen some passing references to there being a women's hockey team, um, field hockey, obviously. Um, but I've, I've certainly I've seen nothing suggesting that women were playing football and cricket. And the only photographs I've seen of those teams are men only. But I'm pretty sure that the guild, the women involved in the guild, uh, who obviously there, there were guilds women and there were also wives and daughters of some of the guilds men who moved out. Certainly they had at least hockey, um, sadly, not football and cricket as far as I know. Right, excellent. So we have Barbara asking, bearing in mind the Quakers' beliefs of the Cadburys and Fries, etc., did the Ashbys have any religious motivations? Thanks, Barbara. Um, they were very much um, church-going Anglicans, um, quite committed, although they had a huge row with the vicar of Chipping Camden because they were cycling on Sundays. <laughs> and so they, um, they, they, moved, they, they, they moved their allegiance to the next parish over the hill. Um, but they, what's interesting, so there, there is a sort of Christian socialism kind of thing going on there. Um, but I don't really see that. I mean, he's, he's never talking. There's, there's no real sense of muscular Christianity coming through anything like that. Um, there, there's nothing jingoistic. It's only when the war breaks out in 1914, he's heartbroken. Uh, he's devastated that some of the kids he's taught to swim are just, just running off and join, you know, joining the army straight away. There's a, he, he talks about the public houses being full of, full of rural Britannia, topical, uh, a bossy goddess if ever there was one. Um, so there isn't that kind of, Christianity, muscularity, masculinity, empire link, but there was a, a, a committed Christianity um, underpinning his life. But he, it's the thing is, he also then mixes in as what he viewed as sort of pagan spirits. So he talked a lot about um, the Lord of Misrule and Jack in the Green as being spirits older than all religions, even though they're 18th century inventions. So there's a whole load of mixes going on. There wasn't one single coherent religious ideology embedded. Right, excellent. I actually. Leading very well onto the side. I feel like we're in a Viva and you're just being grilled now, Martin. <laughs> Shows the interest in it. So we have um, Ben Duncan Jones. And this All I'll say is I wouldn't, I wouldn't wear shorts in my Viva, but there you go. <laughs> so ben. ben saying, there seems to be a strong moral imperative to create well-rounded lives and possibly some religiosity, but were there tensions with other contemporaneous uh, religious groups and not just historical yeah. notions of Puritans? Okay. Thanks. I think I've slightly answered that with Barbara in that they did fall out with the vicar because they were always cycling on Sunday and he didn't think they should, but they simply moved to another church. Um, the, the, the main falling outs locally weren't so much with religious groups as just with the, with the gentry, particularly Mary Lord, Lady Gatesburg, um, who was a very, very dyed-in-the-wool aristocratic Tory figure. Um, but no, I, I, there's um, certainly, I mean, Camden has um, had at the time, sorry, Baptist, uh, C of E and Roman Catholic churches and there's no evidence in any of the documentation that any people from any of those groups were excluded or were angry with what was going on apart from the Anglican vicar not liking Sunday cycling. I mean certainly now I know this is jumping ahead but the, uh, the, the, the 
the dressed up Robert Dover at the Cotswold Olympics every year now is, is normally the Catholic priest. There's a very strong link there, which obviously is an anti-puritanical thing in its own right. Uh, but no, the, his main contempt then was for the historical purity. Right, excellent. So here's one from Matt McDowell, who you've already kind of cited yeah. regarding the sorry, historiography. Sorry, I got your surname wrong there, Matt. I'm just sort of seeing initials and juggling a lot. Yeah, go on. <laughs> a lot of names and texts and faces being thrown at you at yeah. the moment. So regarding the historiography uh, of this area and then the Ashby place within it, does the necessity to place them within a rural milieu hint at a wider city-country imbalance with, within historians' published work? Certainly, and I was guilty of this in my own PhD work yeah. as well, that's very revealing. The work on urban sport tends to reinforce itself, but the material on rural has left less precedence in what we look at. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great question. Thank you. Um, I think so. I think the fact that, that the Ashby's Guild and the experiment they did here was transplanting an urban, and yeah, not just urban, but East End of London, uh, with the community, all of the workers came from working class backgrounds within East London, and transplanting that into the countryside. So you do have, if you like, an urban milieu coming in and dropping itself there. Um, and so all of the team games are very much, pretty much as they would have been experiencing in, in, in East London. Um, I think the difference here is they see the opportunity to provide this rural setting with some new infrastructure by, by building a swimming pool for them um, and really making a, a feature of that. As, as, and if you look at the, um, some of the local histories of Camden that come later, looking back, say that you know, there's no other town in, certainly in Gloucestershire, was as well endowed with sporting opportunities as Camden was, thanks to the input of the Ashby's. So I think you're right, it would be really interesting to do some more work on this to see what other sports were going on. And when Ashby wrote about, he, he wrote, the one I had to miss out of here, he talked about how the lack of, enter the lack of entertainment, particularly sport, was a big, um, I think he called it a disability in the life of country people, um, which, which he blamed very much on absentee landlords just coming back to shoot and fish and hunt. And not worrying about what working people could have. I think Ashby was looking to try and um, redress that. But Matt, I think you're, you're right, that'll be a really interesting thing to, to do more work on. I think particularly here, seeing the, the overlap between something that's so rootedly East London uh, coming into such a rural setting. All right, excellent. So I'm going to possibly show my little Napoleon side here, but I think it's time to maybe move on to Luke. So I think we'll give Martin another round of applause. And actually, I'll ask Martin to maybe respond to the comments maybe either privately or publicly yeah. within the comments section because there is a great deal of interest and i apologize thanks. Uh, well thanks very much thanks I'll, I'll do that everyone thanks for questions I'll, I'll type in some answers after luke's session excellent thanks so much martin thanks. so let's bring that same enthusiasm and inquisitiveness and not too many pointed questions to luke harris from the university of birmingham so again luke is well known to a lot of people in the bssh does some fantastic work on running and the kind of amateur professional Nexus and Luke is going to speak to us today about Jack Price and his move towards um, professionalism. Excellent, thanks very much, Connor, and let's say thanks to the BSH for letting me speak today. So this paper examines the early pedestrian career of Jack Price, an Edwardian distance runner and someone who I'm attempting to write a biography of. Previously, I've spoken and written about Price's participation in the 1908 Olympic marathon and his role in the marathon boom that came as a consequence of this race. Um, the focus of this paper will be Price's 1910 season, his first as a professional. My analysis into this season has encouraged me to think that perhaps he isn't a typical Edwardian pedestrian. The reasons for this are, 
He didn't undertake the role on a full-time basis, but kept, uh, kept his job working in a backcountry steel foundry. He turned down lucrative opportunities to compete indoors and largely stayed away from matches against his contemporaries. And, he did, and those he did compete in were, so, were somewhat unlikely to bring him significant financial reward. Born in the rural uh, Shropshire hamlet of Neen Savage in 1884, Price didn't begin to compete in any organised athletics until the age of 20, by which time he had moved to Hale Zone in Worcestershire, which lay at the edge of the heavily industrialised backcountry where he worked in Stuart and Lloyd's steel foundry. From the autumn of 1905 onwards, Price competed for Birmingham-based Smallheath Harriers, a prominent club both locally and nationally, and one like many others from the Midlands that specialised in cross-country running. Quickly, Price rose to prominence in Midland Counties events and the English National Championships, and this resulted in becoming an international in his first season. Over the following two seasons, Price's reputation continued to build, and despite the fact that he didn't win any of these, win any of these major races, he was viewed as one of the leading cross-country athletes, recognised for his stamina, which ensured he climbed the field through the final stages of the race. In the spring of 1908, Price shifted his attention to the road and to the marathon trial races that were being used to select the British marathon team for the London Olympics. In the Midland trial race held between Coventry and West Bromwich, Price's victory ensured his selection to represent Britain in the Olympic marathon. In the Olympic marathon, Price followed the instructions of those administering the British team and went against his normal tactics of using stamina to climb through the field in the latter part of the race. And he attempted to be in the leading groups from the start. And in intense heat, this led to him retiring after 17 miles. In the aftermath of what is perhaps the most significant marathon race of all time, the British Athletic Authorities and Public Organised Marathons, a term I use lightly when looking at some of the distances that are on screen there, and Price became a prominent figure in these contests, with some success as is demonstrated on screen. Following two unsuccessful attempts to break the 25-mile track record in the autumn of 1909, Price decided to turn professional with the intention to compete in the lucrative Powderhall Marathon in Edinburgh. Price's decision to turn professional appear, first appeared in the press on the 13th of December 1909, when the Athletic News included an article that demonstrated that his decision was final and had caused sorrow to his own particular clubmates and consternation in amateur circles. As demonstrated by the quote on screen, Price's motivation for the move was purely financial a decision that in time was vindicated, as the success he enjoyed over the following years enabled him to purchase his own house. The Powderhall Marathon was itself a byproduct of the 1908 Olympics, and in 1910, the contest took place solely on the Powderhall track. The favourite for the race was Lewisham's Charlie Gardner, who had risen to the top of, prof uh, to the top of professional British long-distance running following his victory over Durando Petri, the Italian whose disqualification from the Olympic marathon helped inspire the marathon boom, inside the Royal Albert Hall the previous December. Beginning at 10am, 10, 10 39 men started the race with the intention of completing 106 circuits in front of a crowd of over 20,000 spectators. The reports from the race indicate that the race didn't really start until the 10th mile, when half a dozen men singled themselves out, leaving the other 25 runners in their wake. Shortly after this, and Price came to the fore, and he won 
the race. Price's own account of the race differs somewhat, as he stated that he won by 300 yards. He also added that he ran the last five minutes, and the la sorry, he ran the last, last mile in five minutes and the last quarter of a mile in just 69 seconds, further evidence of his strong finish and stamina. The, uh, the rewards for his efforts were set with £75 and a gold watch, which I was lucky enough to get a photo of from his grandson. Following the race, the West Midlands Press gave further insight into Price's turn to professionalism. The County Express felt that Price had turned professional because the amateur path was not ambitious enough, while Renard of Wolverhampton's Express and Star believed his succession from the amateur, amateur ranks when he did is a sore point with me. In reference to his timing, as he felt he should have seen out the cross-country season with Small Heath. Following Price's victory, he became a prominent name in pedestrian circles, and uh, primary references regarding Price over the following weeks concerned the challenge he's faced from his fellow athletes for matches, where either two or usually three athletes would compete for a set fee, based on the, based on the efforts of a promoter, betting, and the paying spectators. These matches primarily appeared to be organised through the sporting life, who often held deposits and organised referees. They also published many of the exchanges between the athletes, giving plentiful insight to the historian. I think particularly the financial aspects, and I think this is an area that certainly deserves more research. Initially, it seemed that Price's first opponent looked to be Charlie Gardner, with a constant flow of messages passed between the two men and their camps. Gardner was undoubtedly the most prominent of the distance pedestrians attempting to organise matches in this period, demonstrated by the excerpt on screen from a day in February 1910. Unlike Price, he was committed to running on a full-time basis, with seemingly no other significant streams of income, and so he's always looking to challenge famous and new opponents in the hope of generating interest and a good payday. Owing to an injury that Gardner sustained in the Powder Hall Marathon and the organisation of an indoor marathon ensured that the, ma the much-talked-about match did not immediately take place. Following the organisation of the indoor marathon in February, Price stated he had that he had no intention of taking up indoor running, but stated that he was willing to take on any competitors from the race. This is, of course, going to take place outdoors. Following the victory of the, the Frenchman Louis Bouchard in a time of 2 hours, 36 minutes and 18 seconds, which was a record for the marathon in Britain at this time, both professional and amateur, ensured that Price was the first to challenge Bouchard following his victory. Undoubtedly, the prestige that Price had gained following his victory in Scotland, the Frenchman accepted and the race was quickly confirmed for the 7th of May. It is notable that Price both received challenges and challenges other opponents in this period, but little came of it, and he was certainly not alone in this, and there appears to be more talk than action amongst many of his contemporaries. In preparation for this contest, Price organised his first professional match against the Welshman Ben Christmas, who, through amateur cross-country races, had become an old esteemed friend of Price's thanks to their meetings. On the 28th of March at Kidderminster, the two men met over 20 miles before a crowd of approximately 1,000 in a contest which had little excitement before the 19th mile, when Price shot ahead and managed to lap his opponent before the conclusion of the race in what was described as a brilliant finishing effort. 
Within a month, the two men met again, this time in West Wales, and a poster from the event and a description of the race are shown on screen. Once again here, Price demonstrated his excellent stamina to pull away in the final stages of the race. The description also demonstrates one of the potential pitfalls of the uh, professional matches, the potential for the weather to damage the gate, and of course the profits made by the athletes. Reflecting on both contests, there appears to be a thought that Price hadn't been fully tested during the two matches. On the 5th of May, the representative Price and Bouchard signed the papers to confirm the contest between the two men which was to be over the full marathon distance at the Victoria Grand Stoke for £25 a side. In the days before the race, the Sporting Life issued several previews that bigged at the contest and a belief that a record time for the marathon would be set in this contest. Despite the promotion of the race, the contest took, uh, took place in front of a poor attendance, undoubtedly owing the, uh, to the death of King Edward VII the day before, which placed the event in the in doubt and in the opinion of the sporting life should have meant that it had been postponed. Also heavy showers persisted through the day and undoubtedly impacted the crowd. The newspaper description to the race noted in the early stages the two men were side by side but after seven miles Bouchard described as moving in fine style Lap Price who by comparison was not running freely. The Frenchman completed 11 miles in one hour, three seconds, whereas Price spurted during the, in the 10th and 11th mile, but did not appreciate, appreciably uh, reduce his opponent's lead. After six miles, Bouchard was inside the amateur record for the marathon, and at 21 and a half miles, he was two and a half laps ahead, at which stage Price gave up, handing the race to the Frenchman. Following the race, Birmingham Athletic stalwart W.W. Alexander made a rare reference to Price during his professional career, remarking the defeat was a sad blow to supports of marathon racing in this district. Whereas Birmingham's sport and play and wheel life commented that Price has had four long distance races this year. It has to be imagined that he cannot keep on that, on that, that, on that strain. A remark that could certainly be made of not only Price, but many of his contemporaries, contemporaries who competed a lot more than he did. Um, the Sports Argus included a letter from Price where he praised his opponents on screen now. Price's comments demonstrate the awe in the regard that he held for his opponents in, and also that he was not on top form during this match. The contents demonstrates that despite the new interest in marathon running by both British amateurs and professionals following the 1990 Olympic marathon, the Britain was no means supreme in the discipline. This reflects other areas of athletics at this time. Following the defeat, Price was largely absent from the merry-go-round of challenges that appeared in the sporting life, owing to a bout of Quincy, which saw him cancel a 12-mile match with Ben Christmas in June. At this time, 1908 Olympic marathon silver medalist and now professional athlete Charles Heffron arrived in Britain and he stated he was quite prepared to face Price, but Price issued no response by the means of the sporting life. Price, Price's condition ensured that following the match versus Bouchard, he was out of action for nearly two months, only returning for the 12 miles race at Celtic Park, Glasgow on the 25th of June when he was clearly still not on his top form. The race report's only reference came to uh, Price came in the final standings, which stated he finished in sixth position in a race won in 61 minutes and 52 seconds by Scotsman, Scotsman Alex Haddo with 
Ireland's Pat Fagan in second, with familiar foes Charlie Gardner and Louis Bouchard coming in third and fourth positions. Price then did not compete for another month, and his next engagement was a full marathon on the Gosforth track in Newcastle before a reported crowd of 10,000 spectators. Here, Price was in much better form, finishing second place to Gardner, who finally had his revenge over Price from the Powderhorn Marathon. Once again, during this period, Price's name was absent from the constant flow of challenges posted in the sporting life, perhaps an indication of his desire not to organise matches via this means, or his recent performances not making him a desired, a desired opponent. In late July, Price's name was noted as being one of those who paid an entry fee for the Universal Sports Promoting Syndicate, who were proposing a series of 15-mile races for a Challenge Cup. The first of these took place on the 8th of August at Ibrox Park, Glasgow, and contained a strong field that included Gardner, Haddo, Fagan, as well as Price, who was competing for the Challenge Cup and £115. Despite little intention being paid to Price in the build-up and apparent lack of form, he won the race in a professional record time of 1 hour 21 minutes and 40 seconds, breaking a 58-year-old world record. Following the race, Price once again became the instigator for potential matches, stating that he still desired to compete against Gardner and A.E. Wood, the Essex cross-country runner who had recently become the latest British distance runner to join the professional ranks. Initially, these contests did not happen, and Price competed in several low-key contests locally. His next significant outcome came in a second Universal Sports 15-mile contest on the 10th of September. Here, Billy Clark, who had been a teammate of Price's at the 1908 Olympics, became yet another British runner to turn professional. The quote on screen refers to to Clark and makes some interesting comments about the lure of professionalism, which undoubtedly applies to Price, Wood, Christmas, as well as all those turned, uh, all these people turned professional during this period. In the race, Clark is described as undertaking a lot of the donkey work in the early stages of the race, but after nine miles, Price came to the front and never let go of the lead and won by 600 yards. Clark was to finish second with Gardner third. Three weeks later, all of the leading protagonists came together once again at the High Beach Grounds in Essex, where Wood defeated Price by nearly 80 yards, with Gardner coming in third. In early October, Price took part in the 20 Miles Championship of England at the Leebrook, Leebrook's Grounds, where Price, owing to home advantage and recent form, was billed the strong favourite. But in the 16 mile, he stopped owing to a bad knee and dropped out of the race. This was to be the final action of Jack Price's 1910 season. This was a season where he competed in no less than nine major races, all of which were at at least 15 miles, with three over the full marathon distance. His victories in the Powderhorn Marathon, Ibrox and Newcastle 15 miles races ensured that his first season as a pedestrian was a successful one. Price's season demonstrated the relentless nature of professional distance running. The main protagonists constantly opposed each other in different parts of the country. Excluding the contest with Bouchard and those with Christmas, Price had been generally unsuccessful in organising matches with his fellow professionals, who frequently challenged opponents but failed to deliver on these challenges.
Following the 1910 season, Price fell away from, dis uh, from the distance professional scene, competing sporadically in organised race organized races, but failing to appear at all in the challenges that were still frequently issued by the likes of Charlie Gardner. The quote on screen perhaps gives some indication as to why Price had little success in organised matches, organising matches, and dropped away from the scene. Another potential reason for this was the move away from racing at the full marathon distance, which, excluding the Powder Hall Marathon, became a rarity following the 1910 season, though the marathon boom was very much a short-lived one, with ed one editorial explaining that greed and navy was the reason for this. Conclusions. Was Jack Price a typical Edwardian pedestrian? In some ways, he certainly was. He did compete in matches, challenge opponents, and compete on a regular basis at the highest level. In other ways, no. The quotes on screen suggest a, fr a frustration in organising matches, and this is evidenced by the amount of matches he attempted to organise, certainly from the midpoint of the year onwards. And this certainly dropped off by his defeat, follow uh, following his defeat by Bouchard. Undoubtedly, the organisation of races that were part of professional meetings played a role in this, but Price's actions do, not in, do indicate a frustration in this type of contest. The repeated contests against Christmas, all of, uh, of which three were organised, also demonstrated that gener generating income wasn't always his first priority. But he was also attempting to help out Christmas, who wasn't one of the, the prominent, uh, prominent distance runners. Price's desire not to compete on the, in, on the uncomp uncompromising indoor services that were bad on the body, but generally a very good payday, was sensible but unusual, as was his continuance to work full-time in the Stuart and Lloyd's foundry, something that appears to be different to many of his contemporaries and something I really need to look into a lot more detail. In the following seasons, Jack Price continued to compete as a professional until he joined the British Army in November 1914. Following the war, he competed as an amateur under his battalion in the 1919 Polytechnic Marathon. Although he didn't compete at the top level again, he coached the future Olympian Eddie Webster, and most significantly, he founded Hales Owen Athletic and Cycling Club, which to this day has produced several Olympians. Thanks very much. All right, excellent. So again, thanks so much, Luke, and I'll invite people to give you a chorus of virtual applause, which... It is kind of the nature of the world at the moment. <laughs> so we'll start. We have a few questions here. I've also used my chair of privilege because I may as well do it virtually. So <laughs> beginning with Nick, we have lots of races seem to be called marathons, although they're really different to each other. What meaning was attached to the use of the term around 1900 and why was it so important? I think um, they certainly don't take uh, following the Olympic marathon. That's a huge kind of buzzword. I know Martin's kind of written a little bit about marathon stuff. Um, you know, there's this huge excitement both in North America and in Britain following the drama of the 1908 Olympic marathon. And I think by naming the races this term, actually, it's one way of generating interest. It's, it's a selling point of these races. Most definitely. I think that that's certainly it. You look at some of them, they're, they're 10 miles short of what a marathon is. You know, no Olympic marathon had been below 25 miles, even though there was no set distance prior to 1908. Um, but certainly it's the, um, it's the draw. It's the encouragement in drawing the public and, and athletes into it, I think. All right, excellent. So this is uh, me kind of headbutting my way into the conversation, which is a very odd mixed metaphor. But I'm just wondering, what, was Price influenced by the kind of rise in the debates about like scientific training in the Edwardian age? You know, did he take 
plasma on like egg-based supplements was he looking at what other people were doing and trying to implement that in his own work I'm not finding any kind of real evidence about his training too much. You know, there's the odd reference in the local press. The West Midlands has a real rich source of, of press, both from Birmingham and, and Wolverhampton, as well as maybe even some more local ones from Hales Owen as well, that actually do comment about price. And it, it just talks about his, his desire running around the local hills seems to be his training. And, and speaking to his, his grandson, that actually he, he just seemed to generally love to go out for distance runs. He used to run back to Neen Savage to, to visit his mom. That was a, a considerable distance. So there's no kind of evidence of any kind of thing like that that, that I've come across. That would certainly be really interesting, definitely. Um, perfect. And then returning to Nick, did Price leave a particular legacy? I suppose a follow-on from that is like, what drew you to doing such work on Price? Um, uh, Price, I suppose Price's bit, best legacy is is the Hales Own Athletic and Cycling Club. Um, so another aspect of my research has been into looking at this, and in following he came home from the war, he just wanted to have somewhere that young men could go to and compete. You know, this there's that football, cycling, athletics. Um, he just wanted to give some space that they could do some recreation. Um, and you know, his greatest legacy has, is this club. Um, uh, uh, Jess Varnish perhaps been the most notable recent example of someone to come from from that club to go and compete in the Olympics um, so I think that's his, his real legacy and he was also really thought of highly as a trainer as well Eddie Webster um, competed in the 10,000 metres in the 1928 Olympics and like him was a great cross-country runner and there was, a, there was a several runners who under the flag of Birchfield Harris which kind of um, the Hales Owen Club initially kind of went under in the 1920s, really successful thanks to, to Price's uh, work. And you can see some of the, the influence here because Price um, wrote, se wrote several articles in the, um, the Stag Bearer, which is Birchfield Harrier's own um, magazine, as it were. Uh, in the 1930s so those are real rich source and he does actually talk a little bit about his his philosophy and training there though nothing nothing really about himself just what how he thinks athletes should go about things and, and actually something that i think all of us were wondering when we saw the um the pocket watch that you're giving to price Ralph is wondering have you spoken um about jack price's grandson on the watch have you or sorry you spoke about the grandson on the watch have you interviewed his family and or do you plan to Yes, I have done. Yes, I spoke to his grandson on, on several occasions. He's really supportive of, of this and really excited. In my initial slide there, there was a, a blue plaque that's from the middle of Hales Dome, which is his grandson um, organised to be placed there and such like. So I, I have spoken to them. Um, you know, he, I think he was, he was kind of younger than 10 the time his granddad died. So not, not too much there, but they, they're certainly very excited and, and they've got still a lot of his, his records and um, medals and things like that certainly one from the 1908 trial race which is absolutely fantastic the engraving on it is absolutely magnificent all right brilliant so if anyone has any questions i think um now is the time to type them in um but if not i'll say feel free to reach out to either luke or martin through say social media twitter etc i'd like to give a round of applause once more to both of our speakers for a really great kickstart to the bssh conference so again feel free to do your virtual reactions thumbs up or